Hey everybody, this is Rob Ryersey and Dan Dietrich. Hey, hey. And it is the Common Good Podcast. It's Tuesday, we're going to be talking some politics, going to be talking some news. We are without our fearless leader, Doug Paget. He is, uh, as he might say, somewhere outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, spent the Easter weekend in Nashville uh, with a Vote Common Good and a group of partners um, seeking to stop the execution of a man on death row uh, in Tennessee who's scheduled to be executed on Thursday. And, uh, you know, on this holiday weekend where uh, Christians around the world stop to contemplate and consider, A, that their savior was executed by the state, and B, uh, rose again from the dead, uh, proving that that execution um, was not, you know, ultimately powerful. And, uh, you know, it was a really kind of a wonderful time to consider maybe some of the implications of that for us in America today, when we still think that execution, state-sponsored execution is all-powerful and uh, gets the final word when it comes to justice. And yeah. Easter reminds us that it doesn't. And uh, so, Dan, that is where Doug has been. He, so he they did a march yesterday of uh, nine miles from where uh, that execution is scheduled to take place to the state capitol in Tennessee. And uh, Doug was a part of that. And so he's in Nashville still and uh, participating in additional events um, related to those things. So it's you and me today, Dan. Did you have a good Easter? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, You know, like you, for a long time, every Easter week was like a marathon of church services. I was a worship pastor for a long time. And so you'd get to Easter Sunday afternoon and just be exhausted. Yes. But the last couple of years, I haven't had to do anything, and it's it's been kind of nice. I, Sunday was the first Easter of my life that I did not attend church. Wow. And uh, yeah, very strange experience in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It began with, you know, my seven-year-old violently throwing up. Um, you know, I, we've probably all, all of us who are parents have had that experience where you're laying in bed and you hear a sound. And that sound registers with you. You don't know what it is, but it registers with you as, uh, oh, no, something's wrong. <laughs> and uh, and so... Was it the urgent little, pitter-patter of footsteps running no, toward it was the bathroom? A, it, was kind of a, it was kind of a bang and like, like what was that? Um, and so I went running upstairs to our seven-year-old's room and I found her at her doorway, turned around, standing in the carpeted hallway throwing up back into her room, which is not carpeted, thankfully, that she knew enough not to throw up on the carpet. (laughs) Um, And when I got the light turned on and got a look at her, uh, Dan, she had throw up everywhere, (laughs) all over her face and through her hair. So that was how Easter started for us. Happy Um, Easter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Were you thinking you know, about going to church before that, or was that nah. not even a? Nah, yeah, nah, not this year. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was an Easter like unlike any other, but uh, oh, but yeah. came through it well, and uh, you know, 
It, it's one of those things. Well, Dan, we've got some news and some politics to talk about because that's what we do here on Tuesdays. We do we talk politics? Um, you know, I, I, and listen, those of you that are that are watching us live on Facebook and Twitter and all those other places, uh, you know, jump into the chat and tell us your worst Easter story. Um, <laughs> All things considered, that still wasn't even the worst Easter of my life, but that's a story for another day. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we'd love to hear either. <laughs> we, we'd love to hear either your bad Easter stories or your, you know, waking up to kids puking stories. Um, either one. Uh, those are it, those are great. And if you can put your hands together like I did this morning and give us a Easter puke story. That's, that's just the best. Yeah. Well, listen, well, we want to talk some politics. There's a, there's a lot going on in the news. There's a lot happening. Dan, should we start with the absolutely ridiculous? Should we just get the ridiculous <laughs> out of the way? I think so. And you're laughing because you know what I'm talking the about. The ridiculous once again listen, comes from Tennessee. Yeah. Dan, I think we, you and I were on the phone. We were on a zoom call on Tuesday or Thursday of last week, I believe, uh, working on some vote common good stuff. And, uh, Somebody said it, it might have been me. I don't remember exactly how it went down. Somebody said, "Hey, have you heard about?" Maybe it was you that said this. Have you heard about this thing that happened in Tennessee, where a uh, state representative, state senator, some guy in their state legislature um, was talking about Hitler, and uh, that you know commenced in us finding the video and watching it and being utterly amazed. So here's what's happening is context. Um, the state of Tennessee, their state legislature is debating uh, criminalizing homeless people, be homeless, unsheltered people, unhoused people um, being on the highway or um, panhandling at, uh, at, at exit ramps and, you know, not being able to essentially be on this kind of portion of state highway. Um, and like that's it's basically making life that is difficult already for, you know, part of our population even more difficult. Yeah. They want to make it a felony to set up a tent under an overpass, for example. Or to, you know, ask for donations at, you know, at, a, at an exit when people are stopped. Which, listen, I you know, it, on, on one perspective, can be tremendously annoying, but on the other perspective, like, I, it, like that's hard work, and it like, and for many people, it's really the only option they have, the only resource they have, mm-hmm. and and to and so that's what's being debated, and this gentleman weighs in on the debate with a little history lesson. Give you a little history on homelessness. 1910, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with the masses, and then went on to lead a life that got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps and have a productive life, or in Hitler's case, a very unproductive life. I support this bill. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Nicely. <laughs> It's just stunning. I I almost feel like folks need to hear that again because it's just like, wait a minute, what? What? So many. Let's just just revisit on homelessness. 
Nineteen and ten, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with the masses. And then went on to lead a life that got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of these homeless Mm. camps and have a productive life. Or in Hitler's case, a very unproductive life. Okay, okay. So let's let's dissect this a little bit. Can we can we start with nineteen and ten? Who talks like this? Who talks like this? Senators from Tennessee, apparently. Ah, nineteen and ten. I just ah that enough that ah that is so annoying. Okay, secondly. Don't ever invoke Hitler. <laughs> no one should ever invoke Hitler. Not positively, as an example of someone who came out of homelessness, or negatively, comparing him to, you know, your favorite or least favorite politician of the other party. Right. Just don't. Bring up Hitler. Like, it's kind of rule one of politics. It, oh, my heart. Life. So he says that Hitler spent two years homeless. I th- This is, you know, history lesson. Honestly, I didn't know this. We're um, learning something new today. Yeah, right? a little footnote in Hitler's life. Didn't know that that was the case. Um, he lived in homelessness for two years and used that as an opportunity, according to Senator Nicely, uh, to practice his body language and oratory. Dan, what does that mean? You know, I are you are you picturing Hitler? Are you pic- body language and oratory? That means the Heil Hitler Sig Heil. Maybe that's where he was workshopping it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Is he in? Are you, are you picturing Hitler either on the, on the side of the road, at a corner, or maybe, you know, at a, on a park bench or in a, in a tent city or something, practicing different salutes? <laughs> Get, you know, getting like, you know, the, the, the masses, you know, of, of folks, the folks around him to say, hey, what do you think about this one? I'm not even going to, like, do any for, you know, fear. <laughs> because you don't invoke Hitler. That's why. <laughs> Secondly, practicing his oratory. Is he giving his rousing speeches to the... It's confusing see? on a number of fronts. Like, is is this a celebration of Hitler pulling himself up by his... Well, it got him into the history books. It, yeah. Listen, got him into the history books? Like that. <laughs> that is a that's a phrase you use to praise someone. Uh, and and also, he talks about so he uses this example of how Hitler was homeless and through his experience of being homeless, he developed the body length. necessary to take over Germany and enact the Holocaust. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was going to back it up a little bit from that. The skills of, of, of body language and oratory that connect well with people, um, according to Senator Nicely. And presumably he did that by, I don't know, standing on the corner and 
asking for money, um, interacting where people are in public, the very thing that this bill makes it harder and illegal for Tennessee's homeless population to do. So he stands in favor of this bill by telling what is in his mind a positive story of someone pulling themselves out of homelessness while supporting a bill that will make you that will criminalize homelessness. Uh, See, maybe it's a cautionary tale, Rob. Maybe he's saying that if we let these people just live their lives homeless on public land, they will all become Hitler's. He's trying to prevent did a you new get wave the sense? of... Did, did you get the sense he was talking about Hitler I, in a negative I, way in this video, Dan? Because <laughs> he seems like he's kind of obsessed with Hitler. Yeah, nothing about it makes sense. And so I'm just trying to find any avenue in which his mind, this story of homeless Hitler would support this <laughs> bill criminalizing homelessness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, homeless <laughs> Hitler. Oh, uh, oh my goodness! So these are the um, these are the folks running Tennessee. These are not the just Tennessee. These are the, the folks. I mean, I have become convinced over the last couple of years that state legislatures are so tremendously important. And there's been a, a concerted Republican strategy over the last few years to to win state legislative races to control state legislatures because mm-hmm. there's and there's two things that can happen from that. One is laws can be passed that will, they know will eventually end up at the Supreme court. And, and so there's kind of the Republican strategy has been twofold. Yeah. Supreme court, state legislatures. That's how you win the culture war. And, uh, and it's worked yeah. and it's worked. Um, and everything from voter suppression to um, limiting reproductive rights to, you know, anti-trans, anti-gay bills, all of this stuff. And, and then ultimately, um, you know, the ability to, to elect or appoint electors to choose the next president of the United States and to control that process. Uh, all of that is controlled by state legislators, legislatures, and they are riddled, riddled with guys like Senator Nicely who get i think dan you were the one who pointed this pointed this out gets near the end of this thing and maybe something in his brain is firing going wait a minute 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 i've been talking positively about hitler <laughs> something in his now. brain was like and, and so he so he throws in the, the little or an unproductive yeah. life in the oh, unbelievable oh. Yeah, I, I I don't know what to say. Yeah, it's just. But there are states uh, that are trying to give Tennessee a run for their money. Governor Abbott over in Texas, yeah, is uh, is doing a bunch of dumb stuff, and one of which is uh, he enacted this new set of truck inspections for trucks carrying goods across the U.S. Mexico border through Texas, and they're already inspected. By the way, the trucks. But he wanted to double check things and make it look like he was a real tough guy. And trucks were backed up dozens, some say hundreds of miles, just clogging 
the supply chain at the Texas border. And he has since had to reverse this because everyone, Republicans and Democrats, were like, yo, this is dumb. You're you're wasting money and resources. Uh, I saw one report that some $200 million worth of produce was just mm. wasted because it rotted in these trucks waiting to get into the United States. Uh, all for some political points. Yeah, and 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 I'm really glad that this has backfired on him because you know there's there's two there's two significant crises that we're that we're facing right now that converge together in you know in in what you know we've been what people have been talking about in terms of inflation and the rising cost of goods and how you know the cost of living has gone up and and all of that and the. the Two of the primary reasons why, one is the supply chain. The supply chain has been significantly um, squeezed and choked at different points as a result of factories, manufacturing plants, warehouses being closed, transportation being limited, closed because of the pandemic, transportation being limited, uh, you know, the ability to move things internationally being limited, all of this stuff from the pandemic um, has caught like is has caused the, you know, the the butterfly effect of that has been that the supply chain has been has been challenged. And that has helped to drive up prices because supply has been down, demand is up and uh, and that that drives up prices and inflation. So making things more difficult, like choking the supply chain at our southern border, um, now is not the time to like make things harder for you know goods to get into the United States. Yeah, it's like it's the time where we ought to be doing everything we can to ease the supply chain mm-hmm. to make it flow more easily. And Governor Abbott has has done that. Second thing, the other thing that's contributed to. Um, Inflation is, you know, people talk about gas prices being a, a contributor to inflation. And, you know, the the use of gas, gas supply, all of that being limited. Um, and here we have, you know, trucks sitting on the side, sitting on the road, idling, yeah. waiting, wasting gas. Having to be is, refueled while they're stuck in line because if they don't, their refrigerator trucks yep. will spoil more food if they can't keep it refueled and running. And yeah, yeah, it seems to me like Governor Abbott is is an interesting guy to me in a lot of ways. Um, when, like when you look at him politically, he's had he's had significant impact on you know what's happening in the country for a variety of reasons. Um, laws that he's passed, policies that he's that he's enacted in in Texas, and, and how those have rippled out around the country. Um, this one seems to me to be pretty tone deaf, and um, strikes me as kind of vindictive towards Joe Biden, and not in line at all with where people are at in terms of their the mood of the country. Yeah, and just to drive home how stupid this was uh this is a a bit from morning edition on npr and uh they're interviewing the guy that's basically in charge of inspecting goods coming into america at the texas border 
he says, my people and the USDA people, we inspect every truck. We go through all the contents. And he says, uh, we x-ray it. We have drug-sniffing dogs. They have people that check the trucks for hollow compartments. We've been through all those. We just check them. And the governor's people have no authority to open the trucks. Hmm. All they can do is check for faulty turn signals, brake lights, you know, brake linings, tire tread, that kind of stuff, just safety issues, end quote. And uh, Steve Inskeep says, I don't quite understand what you're telling me, Commissioner. <laughs> I think he does. I think you're telling me that the trucks are already inspected, but they're delayed now at the border so that the state can inspect them again in a superficial way. Is that right? <laughs> he's like, yeah, you got it. But they don't inspect the trucks. They can't. They literally can't open the trucks. They don't have permission. They just do a safety inspection. They don't inspect the contents. Wow. So just wow. They're not. So, they're not catching any drugs. They're not uh, catching any illegal border crossing. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. The, but this is not the only like frustrating thing that Governor Abbott's up to, right? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Because on top of that, I feel like it's a two for Tuesday with Governor (laughs) Abbott. He's also really mad about Title 42 uh, being lifted in May. And so he's taking people they pick up, trying Mm -hmm. to cross the border, putting them on buses, and sending them to Washington, D.C., and just dropping them off in Washington, D.C. Yeah, just as a reminder for folks that. maybe aren't familiar with this title 42 is a CDC, a center for disease control provision that allows for um, there to be uh, additional powers and additional limitations to commerce and movement and all sorts of things in the midst of a pandemic. And so the Trump administration used title 42 as the mechanism to um, stop any border crossing by asylum seekers um, during the pandemic. And, uh, and the Biden administration just announced that they're going to be lifting that restriction to allow asylum seekers from around the world to um, cross the border into the United States to seek asylum, which is what you have to do to seek asylum. You have to present yourself in the country. Uh, you know, think about every movie you've ever watched where like some Russian defects that like the Russian can't defect when they're still in Russia. They've got to get to the United States to defect. Yeah. Uh, It's that same thing. And, uh, and so uh, there's actually this great scene in, uh, in a TV show for all mankind, which is a really fantastic show on Apple plus. Um, And there is, it it takes, there's two moon bases on the, on the moon, um, two bases on the moon, one of the United States and one of the Soviet Union. And through a, a series of events, a, a Soviet, a Russian um, cosmonaut gets injured and gets taken into the American uh, base and is therefore on American soil. And he announces his intention to defect because yeah. he's now on American soil. Uh, so that's so Title 42 kept people from being able to get themselves onto American soil to, uh, to present themselves for, mm-hmm. um, to seek asylum. So that has been, that has been lifted and governor Abbott, um, you know, is apparently thinks that the United States should not be a welcoming country to people seeking political 
asylum and asylum from, you know, horrible violence and, Mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of unfathomable difficulties in the countries from which they come. Uh, Some of which, many of which even caused by U.S. intervention, but that's a whole nother discussion. So Governor Abbott has decided to, uh, you know, pack all these folks up onto buses again, wasting gas in the midst of a time when, you know, we're trying to, you know, I don't know, think about gas supply and make wise choices in terms of how we spend our money. And Governor Abbott is spending the taxpayers of Texas spending their money on expensive gas in buses to take a bunch of folks to D.C. And this is part of like the Republicans' cruelty is the point plan mm-hmm. at the border. Like This isn't a new phenomenon. We talked to a lot of people running organizations at the border that would talk about this practice of Border Patrol picks up some people trying to cross in at one point and to make it more difficult for these people, they deport them to another town hundreds of miles away where the town has no resources, uh, it's overrun with cartel, but they bust them hundreds of miles away to deport them in a different location so they have no contacts, they have no resources, they have no connections and the cruelty is the point. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking for I saw a tweet from Reverend Wendy who is was a guest on the podcast and um and uh is running to be the delegate uh to the United States uh, House of Representatives from DC. Yeah. And she she tweeted this 5 days ago in response to Governor Abbott. Governor Abbott, Texas, announced days ago that he would be busing our migrant brothers and sisters to D.C. in direct violation of their human rights. They arrived at the Capitol today, and I definitely would have been outside to meet them and get them connected. And I definitely would have been outside to meet them and get them connected to community resources quickly. I mean, it's so, you know, she's she is in response to news from her opponent that uh, they were going to you know, try to make things more difficult for these folks, even as they arrive in DC. And Wendy yeah. is saying, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to be a leader who throws open my arms and welcomes people, even in right. the midst of this tremendous difficulty. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of spirit I think we need amongst us as opposed to governor Abbott's cruelty. Absolutely. Dan, can we talk about something else ridiculous? <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I'm in the mood for the ridiculous <laughs> stories today. Um, so the Republican National Committee, led by um, Rona McDaniel, who is Mitt Romney's niece, um, voted unanimously to pull out of the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, so our every four years when we have these debates, there is a commission that is in place. And there's kind of a long history that the commission has been in place, in place since 1987 um, when it used to be sponsored by the league of women voters, but the Reagan and Mondale campaigns had problems with them. And so anyways, the, the commission on president presidential debates was formed in 1987. Can you imagine a worse job than to be on the commission for presidential debates? (laughs) 
Because what you have to do is get the, not the candidates, the worse than that, the staff of the candidates to agree <laughs> to a set of rules and procedures uh-huh. of how things are going to be, the style. And everybody's got their, you know, their, uh, their sense of what their candidate does best. Is my candidate better in the town hall format? You know, sitting on a stool, standing behind a podium, more casual, less casual, like all, like you know, all of this stuff of like that goes into you know figuring out what will position your candidate when they're seen by millions of Americans. You know what will position them in the best possible light, and so since it seems like it would be absolutely impossible to get the two campaigns to agree on their own. The commission for presidential debates, um, you know, has been this kind of arbiter with limited power, but you know, it's, it's been this thing. Um, and you know, it's not a perfect system. Clearly it's not, uh, but it's worked and presidential debates are a tremendously important part of the process of us choosing who is going to be our leader. Uh, you know, I think at times that they are, you know, uh, overvalued, but it is really important to see their command of the issues, their ability to talk and connect, how they interact with someone who's challenging them. All of those things are important. And, uh, and to get a sense of, you know, what they look like on the big stage, that's really important. But the Republican National Committee has decided that they're going to pull out of the presidential debates because they say that the commission is uh, biased against them and isn't being fair. Classic snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, talk about, <laughs> talk about cancel culture, right? <laughs> These are the same people that rail against cancel culture. Oh, you know, oh, they complain about safe spaces on university <laughs> right. campuses. Oh, so there's there, uh, there's two things about this. Yeah, one is this is just showing again the full Trumpification of the Republican Party. Uh, Rona McDaniel is doing um, Donald Trump's bidding uh, because Donald Trump didn't like the way he was treated at the debates. Uh, we know now that in fact that he broke debate rules by not being tested for COVID. Uh, before uh, his one of his debates with Joe Biden and uh, and had, um, according to reports, had tested positive already before that debate and exposed Joe Biden to covid at the presidential debate. You know, so he's someone who doesn't respect this process or, you know, this tradition um, at all. And so, you know, here's the Republican Party doing his bidding once again. Now, I tend to think if there is some, oh, radical shift in, unlikely, but if there is some radical shift in the Republican Party and somebody like uh, Mitt Romney gets the nomination in 2024, this goes away, you know, like this, this easily gets undone. But, you know, right now it is a, uh, it's an indication that our political climate is growing more and more and more fractured. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, we all know this. We see it. We experience it. But this is just not more evidence of that. And what is their main 
beef with the commission because they yeah yeah and, and here's yeah this is the second thing I want to say like part of their so they like, they're complaining about like the you know the bias process and 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 all of it but one of the specific things that they mention which I gotta say um, I don't think they're wrong <laughs> um, they are contending that a debate moderator should not have been the former employee of one of the debate participants. That seems, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> pretty basic to me. <laughs> I, you know, like this. I'll give them listen, that I, one. Yeah, listen, I, um, I reject what I, the, the idea of objectivity. I think objectivity is a myth. I think the idea of an objective journalist is a myth. I don't think anybody is objective ever. Um, I don't think it. I don't think we can be. I think we can attempt to be aware of our biases. We can know what what prejudices we have, what glasses we're wearing, and how that shapes our perspective on things. But but it, it's inescapable and. I, I just don't believe in objectivity. So I don't have this rosy idea of like, oh, let's just get an objective moderator who will be fair to everybody. I, I recognize that that's not possible. Um, I, I think you can move towards that maybe with a panel of moderators and, and you, can, you can figure that out. But it seems to me that someone who, you know, I don't know, worked for the Clinton administration – in a very high level, maybe shouldn't be the moderator of a debate involving Mrs. Clinton. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, like, I don't know that, that doesn't, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Right. And I mean, what, what you do see is when someone like George Stephanopoulos or, you know, that like you've got this movement back and forth between, um, and it happens, you know, with Fox News and the Trump administration. It happens, you know, between Democratic administrations and CNN and MSNBC and, you know, the other networks as well. You've got this movement back and forth between the political world and the journalistic world. And and, and folks move like a George Stephanopoulos moves from commentary and opinion analysis to actual kind of reporting and, and and these lines get blurred and yeah. it's difficult. And you forget that like Chris Matthews was Tip O'Neill's chief of staff. Like here's an, a guy here. Here's a guy with a perspective and opinion, you know, like all, like all of these people in their previous jobs, like were working for politicians. Yeah. Maybe they shouldn't be the moderators of these <laughs> debates that yeah. like, that does not seem unreasonable to me. Yeah. Like if, if there's a conflict of interest, you just you recuse yourself like a good Supreme Court justice would if their <laughs> wife was involved with trying to overturn an election. Or... Exactly. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. So, so can, can we hold two things to be true at the same time? One being the beef that the RNC has with with the presidential commit the, the commission on presidential debates about who the moderators are it like has merit and at the same time pulling out of the commission on presidential debates is so 
juvenile. Yeah. <laughs> Taking These my kickball and I'm going home this. because exactly. I didn't get my way. Yeah. Yeah. You like yeah. I don't like how you set the rules, so I'm going home. Oh, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. These folks. Well, speaking of ridiculous and these folks, some people will celebrate this, but the mask mandate for airplanes has been lifted or rather mm. rescinded by a Trump appointed judge. You know, some people are like ready for this on all sides of the political spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, we're, if you've been yep. vaxxed, you're doing your own thing, we're maskless everywhere, everywhere else. I personally am going to wear a mask forever on airplanes because you're just crammed into a metal tube with hundreds of other people with germs. But they lifted this mask mandate, and the judge that rescinded this order is, a like I said, Trump appointed. They crammed this confirmation through after the election, and turns out she's not, not qualified at all. This is... Uh, <laughs> so she's 35 good for her uh eight years out of law school when trump appointed her to a lifetime position uh her only time that she had trial experience was as an intern she had some clerkships uh but she was rated not qualified by, by the american bar association uh, because of a complete lack of experience but these were the type of people that the Trump administration was getting appointed to lifetime federal judgeships. I, for one, feel like American health and wellness being in the hands of uh, U.S. District Judge, was it Catherine? <laughs> I was reading it. <laughs> Catherine Kimball-Mazel. I, I think American health and wellness being in the hands of Judge Mazel. I feel like we're in good hands. Yeah, because she says, quote, wearing a mask cleans nothing. It, mm. At most, it traps virus droplets, but it neither sanitizes the person wearing the mask nor sanitizes the conveyance. None of that mm. really means anything. Yeah, I'm, being, I'm, I'm using the sarcasm font here, Dan, because, um, listen, this, this, this woman is not qualified. <laughs> this, pers- this person is not qualified to make decisions on the health and wellness of the American public. And and she also doesn't seem to be qualified um, for the job that she is in as a, as a judge. She's not Um, qualified to be a judge, let alone a doctor. Exactly. (laughs) You know, but listen, I wasn't it just like last week, there was a story that the Biden administration was already talking about how the mass mandate on planes was going to be going away. Like within the next couple of it was weeks, ex- I, expire I, I in like two weeks, something like that. Yeah, yeah, like I remember seeing that headline, and so this feels to me like a politically motivated attempt to, you know, get a get a you know chalk up a loss for the Biden administration before uh, before this goes away naturally, yeah. um, as it was scheduled to do, and uh, you know, so it's just once again. You know, it's so tiresome at times to talk about Republican hypocrisy. Um, But, you know, Republicans, but I'm going to do it. Um, (laughs) Republicans talk all the time about activist judges. And we need judges who interpret the law, not judges who make the law. And they just went through this 
arduous confirmation process for a new Supreme Court justice yeah. who is way qualified, and they mm-hmm. they had a lot of issues with her nomination, saying she wasn't qualified yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. But then you look at their picks, and it, it makes yeah. you scratch your head. Yep, exactly. So much of it does. You know what doesn't make me scratch my head, Dan? What's that? I, I, I don't scratch my head at why people would listen to this really wonderful show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm in that kind of mood today, apparently. Um, So I wanted to say thank you to some of the folks that were, uh, that were listening in and commenting ginger and Paul and Valerie and Randy and David and Kathleen uh, jumping into the comments, sharing their stories. Hold on. Let me, let me just kind of see this story from Kathleen. I think she shared an Easter story. She said one year we had the kids dye real eggs and we hid them in the yard. 10 minutes later, we took the kids out to hunt eggs and birds had already gotten to each egg. (laughs) They were torn apart and happy. <laughs> Kathleen, that's fantastic. Thank that's you for sharing one, that yeah. story with us. That's really funny. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, listen on uh, on that happy note uh, of you, the picture of you know a heartbroken child crying <laughs> over uh, you know broken eggs in the in the yard. Uh, Want to say thank you to all for listening in, and whether you're listening on. On the podcast, the audio version, or you're watching live here on Facebook or one of our other channels. Thanks for doing so. Um, I think Doug Padgett will be back tomorrow with a special conversation. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. See you soon.